0: Our heart sponsor for today is the 501c3 nonprofit National Treasures Artists in Residence. We are supporting them by offering an audience requested masterclass on business plan writing. Over 30 days you will receive daily emails with microtasks broken down over the month that will give you a complete plan. This will help you assemble your ideas, communicate your concept to others, and raise capital. Participants will be eligible for prizes that will help you polish your plan to optimize success. Visit AchievePodcast.com forward slash plans with an S to register. Our mind sponsor for today is Modern Career. The Modern Career podcast, coaching, and workshops enable you to navigate your career in an ever-changing world and help you live your full potential. Mary Humiston, a former chief human resource officer of Rolls-Royce, shares insider tips, including insights from leaders and executives from all over the world. Leverage their expertise, they can help you build resilience, overcome obstacles, and feel more fulfilled every day. Visit modern-career.com right now to schedule a session with one of their experienced coaches, and if you use code ACHIEVE20, you'll get 20% off. On this episode, we have Denise Love Hewitt. Denise developed a passion while young for film that has been a guiding light for her throughout her career. She combined this with an interest in fashion and interned with fashion magazines and as a costume designer for various shows and films, including Ugly Betty with ABC and Sex and the City too. She crafted her own major at NYU called Clothing as Culture. Post-graduation, she worked in live event management and spent nearly two years at Viacom as a segment producer. Roughly five years ago, Denise launched Scripted, a marketplace for scripts, promoting democratization while streamlining the process of acquiring scripts. She's also host of the podcast Do the Work. Denise, thank you so much for being on our show.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Uh I've been looking forward to this for some time. Uh hearing your podcast um and learning about your background has been incredibly inspiring. Um, I want to start at the very beginning. Um, did you grow up in California?
1: I did not. I moved seven times across the U.S. growing up. So my dad is an entrepreneur. Um, he okay. runs biotech companies. And so I always tell people I did not come to entrepreneurship lightly. It was not something right. I romanticized or admired because I'd been through <laughs> uh, the darkness of that journey. You've seen with that? Yeah, the the um,
2: challenges of it.
1: So I always say like home is where I am, but I spent my formative years um, outside of Manhattan and then I went to NYU. So New York also very much feels like home. Um, But my parents now live in Colorado and I live in California.
2: Gotcha. Okay. so uh, were you uh, in New York State or New Jersey, just out of curiosity?
1: Uh, We were in um, Westchester County, New York, and then Uh um, went to high school there and then college in the city.
2: Gotcha. Um, What kinds of things did you do for fun growing up? Were you an avid reader? Were you into theater?
1: I was an actor growing up. I went to like theater camp and I was in musical theater, really thought that was going to be my life path until I got to college and took a character acting class and I did not want to memorize the monologue. And it was really funny because I ended up, you know, being like, I don't want to do this. I just want to play myself. And, you know, flash forward 10 years later, that's what I do. I speak about my journeys and my experience of a podcast about my life. And so that part is very full circle because I spent all of my 20s producing for talent. And then you sort of see yourself, you're like the wisdom you have uh, sometimes when you're younger that you don't listen to. Um, but I yeah, did a lot of theater. I had, I was a serious dancer. So I was dancing probably six days a week, seven days a week. Um, ran our dance squad at my high school then was in a hip-hop company and then I choreographed all the theater productions for my dance studio and then I was also (laughs) worked at the florist and then worked as a hostess I my mom was always like why are you working so much and for me it was it was like economic freedom I didn't want to have to like ask for money and Uh, you know yeah wanted to do what I wanted when I wanted and also I have a uh penchant for clothing. And I very sort of probably my biggest vice and biggest addiction is clothing. I'm obsessed with that. And so I had had to have a means to be able to fund that for myself. And so that was really I was like, if you're not going to buy me that I need to be working to like purchase the things that I'm very enamored with. And so I was not a normal high school kid. I'll tell you that.
2: Wow, fantastic. Well, I love the uh, self starter aspect of that. That's really phenomenal and bodes well for being an entrepreneur um share with our audience about your eight-year-old birthday party because I heard this on a podcast that you hosted and it's a great story and I think our audience would love it
1: so my mom, the one thing she did really, really well, no matter like you know whether we had a lot of money or didn't have a lot of money, my mom always did these incredible theme birthday parties. And so we'd always pick a theme and it would be very homemade and she'd make a cake. And there was always a way to find a lot of fun without uh, spending a ton of money. And so one year I've always been, like I wasn't allowed to watch PG-13 movies until I was 13. I wasn't allowed to watch MTV until I was 13. I wasn't allowed to watch R-rated movies until I was 17. So I grew up on old classic film. And so mm. I would go, I'd watch everything Marilyn Monroe and everything um, Fred Astaire. And so I was really enamored with old Hollywood and really was obsessed always with entertainment. And so I, one year wanted a Hollywood theme birthday party. And so my mom said, great, we're going to do it. And I of course had to be Marilyn Monroe. And I had this like gold <laughs> LeMay outfit with feathers and red lipstick. And I drew on my little, you know, mole. And then we did you know, the Walk of Fame, we did created stars with uh, chalk on the sidewalk and everyone had their own star all across our neighborhood sidewalk. And it was just for me, like the, ulti- like the ultimate birthday. Like I was living my like Hollywood dream and it's very weird to then be like, that's the business I work in now uh, where I'm way less enamored with it now. But uh, it was just a, definitely like an iconic memory and also to like have that sort of, um, you're very prescient when you're young, I think, and I think you really understand yourself. You're really unfiltered. And I just really knew that I loved entertainment and that like birthday party really embodied that passion and spirit for the format.
2: That's so great. Thank you for sharing that. And that's <laughs> really why I wanted you to share that because it really speaks to, as you say, what's in our hearts. We're, we're un, um, unfettered. We haven't gone through, we're not jaded at that age. So what, uh, what we share is very pure.
1: <laughs> it really is. It's really crazy. I look at all my siblings, and all of us work in things that we express passions for when we were young.
2: Got gotcha. you. Well, speaking of siblings, I know you have a younger brother, but sounds like more siblings than just older your younger brother?
1: sister, younger brother.
2: Got gotcha. you. Okay. And are they in California as well?
1: My sister was in San Francisco, but because of the pandemic, her and her husband had moved into my parents till the end of the year. Um, My brother will be moving to California. Um, He's in New York um, and he's a tech entrepreneur and my sister is a nurse. Um, And so it's pretty, pretty like sort of a wacky wild house. We've all sort of somehow found our way to entrepreneurship in each of our own ways, but everyone's very, very different.
2: Gotcha. Nice. Okay. Um, You have a great middle name. (laughs) it's (laughs)
1: not my real middle name uh which so i when i started djing about i guess like 10 or 11 years ago now we everyone has a dj name and i was really not interested in having like sort of a alias or an alter ego it was very much just like i want to be myself um But we came up with something, my DJ partner and I at the time, and it was, you know, a ripoff of Jennifer Love Hewitt and became Denise Love Hewitt because my name is Denise Hewitt. And it sort of stuck that I think I'm at the point where it's time to legally change it because no one, everyone knows me as DLH. And it seems that that has uh, like become a part of part of me. So Nice. For <laughs> yeah,
2: it formed a part of your identity. Well, I love it. So um uh, I'm sure you get asked this. People are like, "Oh, are you related to Jennifer?" We do.
1: Yeah, we spell <laughs> our last names differently. Yes. I believe. Yeah.
2: You have an E. She has an I. That's yeah. So part. that's
1: the big giveaway. The dead giveaway.
2: Yeah. yeah. You were interested in all these different areas: uh, acting, being a DJ. So music was a passion. And then when did the passion around clothing and fashion? Come but you mentioned in high school, you'd be a connoisseur. Purchaser. Yeah,
1: I've always been drawn to clothing as a form of expression. Like I think for mm. me, it's other people write, they draw. For me, it was very much, that's my art form. And so when I got to, I was really yearning and craving more of that, like growing up in my high school in my town, like it wasn't, people were very, they very they conformed. And I was sort of this outlier that was really into, I was reading Vogue. I was, you know, my, whatever outlet I could have to sort of ingest this other world. And I really felt like when I got to university, I was like, oh, I'm not a weirdo. Like I'm, 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 I fit in here. Like this is, I feel accepted and I feel seen in a way that I hadn't really ever growing up. And so I started, once I realized, I was like, okay, I don't wanna be an actor. I want to, I was like, well, I really love fashion. So I started working in college, interning at places like Nylon Magazine. I interned for Pat Field on Ugly Betty and Sex City 2 and really got to experience like all the sort of fashion, like dream jobs Um, and really realized I loved clothing. I didn't necessarily love the business of clothing. Got you. The business of fashion. And so my concentration in college, I made my own was clothing as culture. And it really was studying cultural signifiers from film, TV, dance, uh, you know, art, any sort of thing that expresses anything about a society that we live in. But I ended up writing my thesis on fashion because I'd had all these classes, but also internships and independent studies in this arena that it's really become now, obviously the big part that like I DJ and I love to like wear looks and, you know, get to express myself in that capacity. It's still always gonna be a major part of my life, but I think I was much better as like a, someone who appreciates it versus being actually in the business of it.
2: Yeah. No, no, I completely understand that. Uh, fashion as an industry is a very different beast from the kind of the art form of fashion. And um, as you say, like how that influences and impacts culture. Um, and it, even as you were describing the uh, quintessential Marilyn Monroe costume, like Gold LeMay dress with the, the mole, like that's just, that's how we think of it. It's, it's such a important part of our memory or interpretation. Um, so it's great. Did you know when you started at NYU that you were going to create your own course of study or did that happen while you were there?
1: Yeah, I applied specifically to that school because my parents wouldn't let me go to Tisch. So they were like, we're not going to you know, help you go to acting school for like a no guarantee career, which by the way, <laughs> I have had a no guarantee career regardless. Uh, but, uh, but at the time, so I was like to get to spite them. I was like, well, I'm going to apply to Gallatin where I can take classes at Tisch. And still do what I want to do, but then I'll like appease you in this capacity. And Gallatin, I think, is a model for higher education. It really is phenomenal because what it does, it doesn't ask you freshman or sophomore year to define what you're doing. It just asks you to explore your passions. It just asks you to, everything is interdisciplinary, right? So every class you take, you're in a class with 15 other people who have all different concentrations and, and majors. Yeah. And so you're trying to find the through lines and the connection points between all those different things in this one area of learning. And when you, it breeds obviously a lot of entrepreneurs because once you have the ability to connect those dots and translate where the connections are, like I've changed industries probably, I guess, four times now. Right. And people every time I've done it are like, oh, you can't do that, you can't do that. And it's like, well, I see what the through line of these these industries and jobs are. And so it's about me basically just explaining that to whoever's hiring me That like they they should need to understand that i understand the role but we're not allowed to think that way really in our society we're sort of pushed to be a little bit more linear and so what i loved about gallatin was it gave me the time and agency to figure out what i was into how to express myself and then to really like have real life internships and get credit for them and then i you know started working full-time my senior of college and so all my other friends, some of whom went to Ivy's and things like that couldn't get employed eight months after they graduated. Yeah, and really I had already true. been working full time. And so it was not only an academic you know, experience, it was a life experience that set me up to succeed post-college, which I think is a piece of higher education that we're really missing.
2: No, completely agree with you on that. Um, uh, well, it's funny you you sought out these very rich experiences, including two that were in a production space. You mentioned the Ugly Betty one, but also Sex in the City two. You were involved there, and that kind of piqued your or it just sort of was very aligned with um, interests you had. Um, you did start out at um, kind of doing a, um, a sort of director of uh, PR and event planning with uh, a. Uh, the box, right?
1: Yep. I was their head of sales and marketing um, really crazy. They gave me a very big opportunity at a very young age. Um, basically was like running all the sales for a nightclub, which meant like you know massive corporate events, celebrity events, right. and um, you know, over you know millions of dollars in sales a year uh, at 2021, 22 23 that I was responsible for. And so it was a, sort of a huge, huge, Um, sink or swim opportunity that really was defining for me in a a multitude of ways.
2: No, that's so great. And so um, how did the uh, job as segment producer at Viacom come about?
1: Well, I don't have parents in the industry. and This is always like the thing that I talk about that's inspired a lot of the work that I do because Hollywood is such an industry of access and privilege and nepotism. And so for me, all I had was the ability to be resourceful and so yeah. the brilliant part about working at a nightclub that was frequented by very powerful people and celebrities was that i had a rolodex that i could employ and really what i did is i just looked at every talk to every single location scout that came through our space that mm-hmm. had shot there uh, and booked the space for tv shows or films uh, or who didn't and was just like hey i'm really trying to segue into production is there anyone you know that I can connect with? And through those location scouts, there was one specifically, her husband ran this department at Viacom. And she was like, I want you to meet my husband. I spent time with him. And he was like, I'm not hiring yet, but I will be soon. And it was like, I think three months had it transpired. I'm, I'm about to take a different job. That's like a bigger event production job. And he calls me and he's like, I'm ready. Are you ready? And I was like, hmm. yeah, let's do it. And it was like crazy timing. Cause I was like about to say yes to this other gig. <laughs> um, And then I took it and then I came there and I will say like, I was sold a bill of goods that wasn't actually what it was. I was told I was going to come in and like revamp this channel and there was going to be this like, and you know, I had never worked at a corporation other than like as an intern. So I think that was also my naivete that, you know, maybe I would have more autonomy having come from a very autonomous job and walked into a corporate culture that was one that People managed up, they didn't manage down. And then beyond that, it created a really big container of groupthink, which is the quickest way innovation can Mm. die. Um, Absolutely. And for me, as someone who is a futurist, a future thinker, everything I do is ahead of culture by a little bit, sometimes too much. um, It was really hard because every time I would challenge processes or why we did things. I was met with being shut down or resistance. And I really, for me, it was really, it's who I never wanna be as a leader. It really, for me was something where I was like, we're missing the opportunity and we're missing the ability to like nurture ideas and innovation. And anyone who's not not interested in challenging processes, it's probably not the right environment for me because I'm consistently interested in challenging what we're doing and why we're doing it to make sure that we're always staying on course and in alignment.
2: No, absolutely. I, I can imagine how frustrating that must have been.
1: Yeah, I think it's still frustrating. <laughs> I think it's still <laughs> how a lot of how a lot of That's workplace true. culture yeah, works. It's, <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, yeah, it hasn't changed. Well, um, gosh, it's uh, it's amazing the resistance to it. There's just so much fear um, that uh, that feeds that. Um, And, um, you know, uh, with startups, you would think that uh, there's also this, like, there should be this risk-taking culture, but even sometimes startups adopt a culture of, well, it has to be done this way for fear of aggravating, you know, the founders who kind of have established or set the footprint for what the culture should be.
1: Yeah, well, I think that a lot of startups, despite, quote-unquote, pretending or, like, presenting that they're challenging systems, really what's happened in venture capital is we've really created continuations of existing models. There's no one really disrupting. If we were really disrupting, we would be disrupting white supremacy. We would be disrupting capitalism. We'd be creating systems that really are more fair and more equitable. And what we're doing is we're just continuing. And so a lot of the people that are in the positions are continuing to be patriarchal leaders. They're continuing to be um, ego-driven leadership and, I think that's a shame and it really like is one of the things I really am dedicated to bringing more awareness to. I don't believe that like the implosion of a startup every other, you know, month it feels like is necessary. It's because we haven't created the right containers and models and tools for leaders to succeed. And the system itself of venture capital supports what I believe to be irresponsible and unethical leadership. Um, And I think that's like, the the minimum we can do is that, for example, one of a great example is that to be inclusive in a company, it has to start and be baked into the DNA at the start. Once you get to a series B company, there's no company in the history of companies to have gone back and eradicated that culture and made it inclusive. And they're going to have to, we're going to have to figure out what that looks like. But to this day, that's never been done. So if we're not enforcing that from a startup level, from an investor level, from a founder level, from your first seed round, then we are failing because we don't live in a world that is predominantly white. The global majority is people of color. And so if we don't bake that into our practices, then we are failing as, as a business model if we're not taking care of all people.
2: No, no, so true. And uh, I do want to get more into that, uh, particularly some of the elements you shared in the um presentation you did at the Anderson School, uh, which I thought was was phenomenal. Um, but just to um, uh, sort of bridge the gap, um, so frustration at Viacom and so eventually transitioned and you went to um, uh, this Dutch media company. Yeah. Um, to share with us about that. Yeah, that transit. so
1: Endemol is actually the largest independent production company in the world. They're just based in Europe, so we know less of them here in the U.S. But I had been told by a friend of mine who now runs distribution for A24. But at the time, he was just like had left his job at like the Weinstein company. It was just like these guys assistants at A24, right? Talk about huge foresight. Mm-hmm. But he had said to me, we're both in New York. and was like, Denise, you need to go to L.A. And I was like, mm-hmm. There's enough entertainment jobs in New York, like I don't need to go anywhere. And I was really ride or die New York at the time. And he, but the good thing about me is that I'm a reflective person and I tend to retain information whether or not I listen to it in the moment. And so it was always in the back of my head, Mm. as every startup idea I've ever had is like sits in the back of my head until I listen. (laughs) And so I was at this crossroads where Viacom had shut down this department that we were a part of. And I was like wanting to stay in New York, but entertainment jobs were few and far between. And so I decided to go to LA just to network and take meetings, expecting that something would pop up in New York or if it was in LA, I would have like some months to decide and move. And what happened was within two weeks of being there, a former boss of mine connected me with someone. And he called me like a week after I'd been there and was like, our president wants to meet you. If he likes you, can you start Friday? And it was like a Wednesday. And I was like, uh, okay. Because it's like also who I am is I'm like, yeah, I can't, like got to take the opportunity. So that meant that I spent two months sleeping on my friend's futon, went back to New York two months later, packed up the rest of my life and then like moved overnight to Los Angeles. It was totally a subconscious move. And even in the beginning, I was always like, oh, I'll just, this is temporary. Like I'll go back to New York. And it wasn't about eight months in when I quit that job and started my company that I really realized that like for me to build a company would have to be in Los Angeles just because sheer price point. Like I could not afford to have started a company in Manhattan. There's just no way. So the luxury of that in LA was that I was like, I can figure out how to build a life here um, and afford to do it. Um, And so that was the bliss was that sometimes like for me, at least I was like, The universe made a decision for me and it wouldn't have happened if it had to be conscious because I wouldn't have moved because I also have a lot of PTSD around moving having moved so much growing up that it was really important for me as an adult to feel like I had roots and it brings up a lot of feelings every time I had to do it and so it was weird that like as an adult I had to move um, but it ended up being you know one of the best things to ever happen to me.
2: Wow. Well kudos on making that decision (laughs) and so in keeping ideas floating in the back of your mind (laughs) because it seems like that's what ultimately uh kind of the little friends
1: that are like because I mean (laughs) I I feel that I talk about this all the time that like the universe is speaking to you all the time if you're listening and it could be from you it could be in a book like the other day my friend picked up she found this like fortune cookie like whatever fortune on the sidewalk after we had talked and it was like you're on the right path and it was so literal and clear and you're like you just have to be open to what those things are and for me often it's it's a it's in the back of my brain and it keeps popping up until I'm like okay this is an itch I need to scratch but I tend to be sort of like stubborn and it takes me a while to listen I'm getting better the more I understand what that looks and feels like but um it took me a while to surrender and I think you know now I'm a little bit quicker on the draw
2: Gotcha, gotcha. Well, it's it's learning to be attentive, right, and attuned to what's be what we're being told, and that does take practice. And um, uh, there there are some people significantly older than you, including our commander in chief, for whom they never get to that point.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it makes me sad because I think that for me, what it liberates a lot of things for you when you realize you're working in tandem with a bigger power, a bigger force, uh, whatever you believe in. I believe that there, you know, they're, whether you think it's your body and your mind or you think it's a greater power, it doesn't really matter. The point is, it 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 allows you to move more in flow. And I find the more that I surrender to that, the more sort of like present and joyful I feel, and I'm worrying less about what's coming in the future, what's happened in the past, and I think we create a lot of um, pain for ourselves because we're so focused on outcome. And I've really gotten to a place where it's like, if I'm finding pleasure in what I'm working on, that's enough for me. And if other things happen, great. But I spent so much of my twenties wanting to like, get these big goals and get these jobs and these things. And every time it left me unhappy. And so it's really like, what makes you happy and how can you build a life in that, in that joy and passion.
2: Love it, that's so great. So well-spoken, so eloquent. Um, and uh, I just think it's, uh, you've really given yourself such a great gift that uh, that's where you focus your your energy and um, your, your thinking on. So uh, you've been in LA now for what, five, six years? Then?
1: Six years.
2: Six years, okay, fantastic.
1: I think coming from um, seven.
2: Yeah. yeah, but uh, and, and most of that time has been focused on your, your startup scripted. And so you were at Endemol for eight months. So walk us through what you experienced, what you felt and where you were like, I got to go do this.
1: Yeah, so i would had the idea probably a year and a half prior to starting it. And there were a few factors, but I kept being like telling people, I was like, someone's going to do this, someone's going to do this. And no one was doing it. So finally, mm-hmm. what happened was it was an intersection of a few things, which was that it was a mutual qu- like firing and quitting with my boss. It wasn't like it was basically we hit an impasse um, and it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work for either of us because what it, it it was just a difference of values and beliefs. Yeah. Um, and so for me, what was cool about that moment was that it was the first time in my life where I was like, yeah, this doesn't work for me. I wasn't desperate to keep that job. I wasn't thinking about the money. I was just like, I, I have decided this no longer works for me. I know I'm really good at what I do. And if we're not going to see eye to eye, I'm okay with that. Very and that much, was really yeah. powerful for me, number one. I mean, devastating. I was crying. I was crying for like days and days. So like, I mean, <laughs> I, I sound cool now, but like it was bawling for being like, what happened? Did I moved my whole life here? What is going uh, on? Yeah. Uh, Cause that's really yeah. what it felt. I moved my whole life, had no social life right. for months, built this department from scratch, really like had given my everything to this thing. And for it to hit this, like, you know, really big roadblock felt devastating, but I also think once again, the universe intervenes in really interesting ways. And so as that was happening, I was actually dating someone at the time who was an entrepreneur, my brother's an entrepreneur, my dad's an entrepreneur. And all these men around me were building these businesses and they were raising money. And I was like, none of them are smarter than me. None of them are more talented than me. And I have this idea, I understand this issue really well, having come from the business, but never felt like an insider in the business. And I think I have a keen insight in a way to solve some of these really inefficiencies and infrastructure in Hollywood. And so the time the person I was dating was like, just spend $10,000 and like build a prototype and then go raise money. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) It was so, it was like my first, my first flash into like how like heterosexual white men think about business, which was like, you're just going to hemorrhage $10,000 for this prototype. To raise money, and in my head, I'm like, if I'm going to spend ten thousand dollars, I'm investing in something that's scalable. I'm going to build the real thing and then have it go. Because, and and the difference is, I really knew I was solving a problem. So I guess it's different if like you're prototyping and you don't know what problem you're trying to solve. But I was very clear, having worked in the space, that there was some clear issues in the infrastructure of Hollywood that I could fix with a couple technical platforms, and so at that point decided like, and really I'll give props to my dad. My dad really was the one I was like, do I go keep producing? and like losing my soul or do I go try this thing? And I was 26 at the time. And my dad was like, I think it's time you work for yourself. Mm, And it was really scary because I grew up with an entrepreneurial dad that there was no guaranteed security. We had things that did well. And we had times when the company went bankrupt. We had all these sorts of interactions that for me, I really just wanted to, I wanted to be the person that could be a corporate Hollywood person, have a cushy salary and not have to feel like, you know, that financially things were up in the air. Yep. Well, flash That's forward, true. you have to sometimes surrender <laughs> to your calling, which is I uh, officially now live in being financially up in the air. Um which is fine. It just took me, there's a fear base there. And I get when people are afraid to take the leap because it is really scary to go to a place yeah. of making salary to being like, where is my check coming from? Um, but as you find somehow we figure out how to make it work. Right. Um, so I took that leap and then a few stars aligned where like the third technical person I met was like a tech director at DreamWorks who came on board to like build the first platform. And our first platform is a script database. It is the only one in Hollywood that is not pay to play, which was very intentional being that Hollywood really is a business of privilege. And I wanted to eliminate those barriers to entry. And it does not, we do not do that when we ask people to pay to be on the site, then you're, you're creating a socioeconomic space for people that can afford to be there. And that is not creating the best storytellers or the best, um, workers in this business. And so that was number one, our first big differentiator. We're still the only one that operates that way. And we connect the dots more quickly between writers and buyers. I had seen this really early that we were going to hit an inflection point in Hollywood where agencies would not be what they were. I knew that eventually we would move to a model where writers would have like managers and entertainment lawyers. Mm -hmm. And the way we built our system was that we could work with agents. We didn't take from their pie, but I also knew we were going to need an intermediary space. And of course I was a little bit future in this regard, very future. It's only just starting to like sort of break through this past year. Um, but we built that. And so that was another thing. And I really also believed that the public should be able to read screenplays. Like we do bestselling books and articles. I felt like we were missing out on an opportunity to mine original IP. I think we're all fatigued by franchises. And I thought if we, the public could engage, we could really create audience bases, but also real time data, which for me is the part that's missing in the Hollywood value chain. It's like, we can make projections all day long based on celebrities and what these things in the box office, but it's all sort of BS. Like it's not, it's like, it's all like airy fairy, like projections. Like let's get really grounded in real, real projections and how to recoup in entertainment because I don't believe Hollywood has to be risky but when you're creating content in a vacuum, which we did for years and years and years before dis- right. like distribution was disrupted, you can do whatever you want because people are going to go to the thing that they have availability to. When you have a surplus of choice, you That's have right. to create the infrastructure. Yes. So that was our first platform. And we launched that. We sold 90% of the content sold on that site was written by women and people of color which for me was awesome because we're an inclusive site, anyone is welcome. But to see the results be so different to what was happening between the Hollywood power centers, which and just to give people context, when every writer had an agent that was like whatever, you know, that was in Hollywood, you had 87% of writers in the business were white men. So if 90% of TV comes from these power centers, then 90% of television is coming from predominantly one type of lens. Which is doing a huge disservice to the world and to how people can see themselves right not to mention the types of representation we have for women and people of color on the screen um, so we really wanted to like that for me that was really exciting and then we sort of realized um, that we had to build another product because the product we had built was great and it was some infrastructure but it wasn't going to scale in the way that i needed the data to scale to really create shift And so about, I guess it's almost like two and a half years ago now, we went through an accelerator in Silicon Valley to build this new product. And essentially what we've done is we've reinvented the screenplay. We've made it fun to read. It's far more accessible. It's not that boring courier typewriter font that you guys are all used to and don't want to read. It's now like, cool. And as you read it, we, the goal is a they're shorter than a book, longer than an article. So you get full length of story in a short amount of time. And as you read, we get information on audience base, which is awesome because if we can then sort of prove to Hollywood pre-optioning a script, right? That there's an audience base here, then we can actually show up for the content we wanna see, show up for the representation we wanna see. But then beyond that for the business itself, we create a really valuable data piece, which allows them to invest appropriately and then create customized marketing and distribution plans. And for me, that's how I see the future of Hollywood. It's like every movie and TV shows a different business, but we're still right. treating them one size fits all. And we need yep. to get more granular to really start to reach people, territories, audiences, and really start to create a vast entertainment universe, not sort of the very like square one we've seen.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, the big change that you had was making it uh, interactive, but also then getting reader data and analytics. So um, somebody comes to your site, they would register and you'd get demographic profile on them.
1: Well, the goal was that eventually when people were optioning content, that would sort of be uh, like what they're paying for, right? Is optioning for the data. But unfortunately for us, we went through a very long arduous fundraise and did not net the funding we needed to really launch that product. So that product's been living in yes. private beta. Um we're still sort of figuring out that where that's gonna live. Um but I having gone through the venture machine, I very quickly realized that venture was more flawed than Hollywood and it was not a system that in good conscience and being in alignment with myself, that I could continue to participate in or continue to go seek funding from a source that is deeply, deeply sexist and racist.
2: Yeah, no, no, I completely understand. Um, And yeah, I definitely wanna chat about that a bit more, but uh, just to understand the value proposition, because I think it's so compelling, you're basically um, showing potential buyers who has an interest in the story. And that's data to have, to be able to make a decision on what they acquire.
1: 100%. 100%. I mean, this is why I, was, I thought it was so insane that we were raising money because it was such a low, it's such a low, like easy space to succeed in. The reality mm-hmm. is we don't have any of that information today. And you have Hollywood who's optioning bestselling books left and right. Bestselling books sell, if we're lucky on any given week, 10 to 50,000 copies. Okay. So very few bestselling books actually sell millions of copies. So this idea that your bestselling book is like, the barriers like it's quite low. So it's like, okay, so you option this bestselling book, 50,000 people have read it. You don't know who they are.
0: Yeah. What exactly.
1: value is that? You have a presumed quote unquote audience base, but you don't even know who they are. So it's sort of like this barrage of, of value. And then you look at bestselling articles, and then when these articles go viral, you have people really competing to option the rights to those articles, right? With both articles and books, you still have to hire a screenwriter to write the screenplay for both those things. That is time and money spent. That is a development cycle. So what if we could shorten the development cycle? What if we could spend less money? And for me, I just think there's all these really interesting ways for Hollywood to do better business that are not being looked at, largely because we've clung to an old way of doing things. And there's a lot of ego and there's a lot of resistance to technology. And my philosophy is always like, I am such a creative. I am not, a, I am a creative first, a tech person second. Yeah. And I always told people for me, it was like, we're merging information. It's like, we're just stacking the deck in our favor. You still make the thing that you're really passionate about, but to know that no one has engaged to it with it is a value that allows you to create a more comprehensive marketing plan. And I think that for me is just what's failing is this really ability to hold both an equal weight. And I don't think data is evil. I think it's information. And I want all the information possible to make something a success. And so I think we're starting to get there. I think people are really, obviously as the studios are really suffering and we're, mo- we're moving into these really big streaming wars data is incredibly powerful. And so how can we give more people the tools to succeed, but also creatives, empower the creatives to have more agency to make the work they want to make, get paid more, get paid what they deserve. And then on top of it, know who their audience is. I mean, for a creative to know, Tyler yeah, Perry just came out and said that he's got like a, a email list of over 800,000 people that he sends to when his work comes out. Tyler Perry is the future model of a studio. I mean, he's already been doing it for a very long time. That's why he's able to been so successful as quote unquote, an outsider in the business. And so I think we have all the the the, the blueprint. It's whether or not we want to accept it and work with it.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, hundred um, percent. And it would, just what an innovative way to leverage data uh, in, in the space, um, it seems, clear as day with the value proposition
1: uh, think, to, yeah, to me
2: um, which uh, accelerator did you work with
1: it's called matter and so they okay. were focused on uh, inclusive media and technology um, nice. once again very values aligned for me that's sort of been the driver is I've seen a lot of my friends who have raised money deal with the nightmare of misaligned investors or investors oh, yeah. that have a different vision their vision. And, you know, I always say like, it's been a really hard journey for us, but everyone involved believes in what we're doing, um, which I can't say the same for a lot of my peers who might have quote unquote gotten there faster or raised more money or had shortcuts. I think there's a price to it. And I really urge people to think about that um, when they're building their business and when they're thinking about raising money
2: yeah yeah no absolutely um and so great that you found matter uh very much uh, a group in, in sync with uh where your value system is and and um to be able to support the business but um you know the comments you've been making about the overall vc industry having been one myself a venture capitalist um i completely agree with you there is a strong amount of bias um and i loved how in your talk you highlighted how um, there's such a, a low percentage of VC partners who are female, and the statistics around female-led companies that actually get funding, and even the, the disparity in the dollar amount that gets funded, okay. um, is really uh, unfortunate and and a horrible situation that needs to be to be rectified. And I loved how you had the stat on the uh, uh, ROI, the IRR, um, women have had a much more successful track record of uh, uh, returning gains versus versus men. So, um, you know, as rational as uh, the investing industry claims to be, Um, none of these activities comport with what the data actually suggests should be happening. Um, Men should be in the minority. We should be struggling to raise capital.
1: Yep. And what's crazy is that during the pandemic, right, not only have a disproportionate number, I think it was like 865,000 women left the workforce last month, which is eight times the rate of men. And men were three times more likely to be promoted during the pandemic. But separate from that, you also have what is last quarter is the lowest quarter for women in VC financing in three years. So if last year we rounded out at 2.8% of women were funded by venture capital, which is, first of all, a horrible number. And the fact that we were championing it like it was an improvement because it went up a little bit was we should not be patting ourselves on the back for 2.8% of women getting funding Okay, when women have higher return on capital, number one. But then for the last quarter to be the lowest quarter in three years tells me this year is going to come in lower. So we've made zero progress. But the idea that during a pandemic, during like a fear-based time, you have predominantly male investors going back to quote unquote what they know and where they feel safe. And I think we really have to look at like our fear-based tendencies as humans and how to break out of them and how to think bigger. Because if we have people that aren't leaders in venture capital, then we're never going to have innovation because venture capital is a leading industry. And it's become very formulaic, which in my keynote that I talk about is that it's, it's very much a pattern matching industry. There's no one really like, if you're the Uber for X, you're getting funding. We've seen it before, you're getting funding. But the people that are really disrupting and innovating are not getting the same you know, share of attention and funding. But I really think it all has to do with being fear-based. And so I yeah, think that 100%. like that's why I wasn't surprised last quarter. I'm like, yeah, of course, this is what happens when we have a time where everyone's like afraid of what the future's gonna look like, what COVID's gonna do. And once again, this is also very short-term thinking, which is what venture of the capital has become. It's become a short-term financial vehicle. If we're thinking about legacy companies, if we're thinking about long-term financial outcome, you know, my business is just one example, but my business is looking like 15 years ahead. Like I was five years to future. And so the whole point was that I was building something that as and when all these critical trends came together, we had built the tool, we had built the solution that we would save all these companies from this like inevitable destruction or heartbreak. But if we're thinking short-term, these investors aren't interested. So now that it's becoming more zeitgeist, you see a different reaction, but I don't want people investing in the future that are thinking short-term. We want people that are thinking about what are the things that are gonna come to a head Uh, And how can we create, invest in those businesses? So when it does, we're prepared. So we don't lose as much market share. And I think that's the part that I struggle with because it's like, if we're actually thinking about money and making money, um, these things are all very rational and logical. But really what I've come to realize is that it's not about money. It's not about, because if it was, we'd do it. It's about power and it's about um, safety and it's about the lens of scarcity. And it's about looking good to your peers and so much a venture is the buzz train. It's they invested, so I'm investing.
2: FOMO is such a big element in investing.
1: Yeah. And it's like, but then they also do the thing where they they don't, instead of being transparent and saying, hey, this is not a fit for us or hey, like they keep the door open to these founders because they don't want to quote unquote miss out on the opportunity as and when. And it's like, yeah, if you right. have a feeling you're going to miss out, then you should act on that now. Because what they don't, what really people don't really understand is like, founders remember, like we all have spreadsheets to keep track of who we're pitching, what their answers are, and what people do. And so for, you know, and you start to realize who is in alignment with your value systems and who's not. That's right. And all of us remember. And so it's like you giving a non-answer doesn't make me compelled by you, doesn't make me think you're the person I want as a part of my company. And so I think that like, this is what I keep really trying to drive home to founders too, is that we both were, this is a team dynamic. We have to be on the same team. And I implore founders to interview their investors just as much as they're interviewing you.
2: Absolutely, it has to cut both ways. Yeah. Um, but few grasp that, and um, now that's that's critically important. That that misalignment can cause such a headache down the line. It, it's it's really like dating, and when you think about it, the stakes are even higher because it's actually easier to uh, de entangle from a relationship than it is from a,
1: <laughs> a your livelihood. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One
2: hundred percent. Um, no, so much of what you're saying, um, absolutely resonates and the, 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 fear-based, um, decision-making is, um, really will stymie, um, uh, the, the type of progress that, that we can actually be making. So uh, just thinking about scripted, um, are you looking to sort of, uh, just rely on revenue in order to fund and grow the business then?
1: Well, the lucky thing for me is that I have a multitude of revenue streams now. That's sort of what happened when you have a company that doesn't get the funding it needs. So, um, you know, I really am supporting the business until we figure out the right outcome. You know, there's a version of this where I charge writers, which I refuse to do because it's not in value with my ethics. But, you know, I think that I believe in what we built and I believe we were just a little, you know, too ahead of the curve. Um, that as and when there's gonna be a moment that arises that makes sense um, for us to catapult to the next phase. And so much of this about being too future, I tell people all the time, I'm like, there is a cost, there is a burden to being too future. Um, but if you can hold on, I think you will you will find the the best suited outcome. Um, and so you know, that's what we're doing. I mean, we do monthly pilot readings every month, we have scripts uploaded all the time, we certainly have like a you know, vast sort of life on the internet. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's weighing for me as a sort of type A ambitious person, what I know this can be versus what it is now. Um, and I think that's just like, you know, where I live in the place where like from, you know, we're, we're doing what we intended to do. We have a great platform that does well online that really gives writers real opportunity. We've birthed so many careers. I'm so proud of the work that we have done but I know it can be much bigger. And so yeah. for me, that is just like the thing, which is like just, you know, holding on till those that vision comes to fruition. Um, yeah. But I have faith that it all will.
2: Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. And what is your revenue model? You take a percentage of uh, what gets sold?
1: Um, we take a percentage on products produced. So that's sort of how it works. It's more of a long-term strategy. The goal was that, especially with agents, um, when they were in play, was that we didn't want to take from their sort of option money so the rather would be like we'll take on the whole i sort of think of it like sort of like a venture model which the goal is um you know that we only win if the writer wins um and we're casting a wide net um and so i really care about the long-term benefits and change in hollywood and so our model was emblematic of that uh it wasn't like a short-term model it really was focused on how can we invest in long-term outcomes in this business um, i'm betting on you know inclusion and transparency as the way this is going to go and yeah we stick to that we try and like walk the walk and talk the talk
2: that's so great and you've had a series of successes first one being hope springs eternal back in 2018 sold to netflix um, share with us some others or some some meaningful anecdotes from that whole process yeah. well we've had a course. lot of
1: a lot of things sell that haven't been made yet so we've sold to you know we found a sort of a sweet spot in a helping people find writers so for example we get calls a lot of like we're looking for afro Latina writers for this writer's room can you please help us right because what's happening in the system is still very quite quite minimal and so these people don't have a space in the system so how can we help those outside the system get in um, so that's been really, really meaningful. We've also had a lot of things optioned to celebrities. So the thing is a lot of talent is looking for content that their team is not feeding them because it may not be the highest revenue option. And so mm. we come in and we're able to help them find like critical, you know, things that could be critically acclaimed or meaningful pieces or types of work that they would like to be doing um so there's a whole like beautiful range of stuff that we've done we've also had things sold internationally which i think is sort of funny because you know like if it's an international success it'll just be re-optioned by the us uh to be made <laughs> into a four format here um so but the, but the goal really was to create maximum amount of opportunity and so having sort of this open source database allows us to sort of have a lot of different entry points into outcome um and how can we like best service you know, not only the writers, but the people in Hollywood, I don't care how successful you are, there's still a project you can't get made. And so our goal is to sort of really um, support everyone who has a meaningful project to move it forward.
2: That's fantastic. I uh, just love that theme, love the efficiency that you're bringing to the marketplace. And uh, I mean, uh, so every production company has a large development budget that includes like uh, a, a large staff. And so they can really streamline it if they they work with a, a group like yours. So um, Denise, it makes so much sense. It's really, that's, that's fantastic. Um, let's talk about your podcast called Do the Work. And um, you talk about it being about uh, the intersection of business and spirituality. And another theme that I really liked um, that you have in your intro is um, talking about how um, the way we are in our personal lives and the way we are in our professional lives, um, we should uh, try and get those to align as much as possible.
1: Yes. I um, was very excited for that to come to fruition. I, have been so blessed on my entrepreneurial journey to like collect amazing minds. And for me, there was like these probably like five sage women that were distilling wisdom to me every time I hit a really intense road bump. And they really inspired me and really helped develop me as a person. Like so much of the journey of scripted was not only the ability to build this beautiful thing that I believe is a model for the new world of Hollywood, but it was a personal development journey for me. And that journey has made me a better human, a better leader, a better contributor and a happier person. And so as I sort of really started to weigh and I I go to therapy, I'm really into different types of methodologies and modalities. um, I think that if people don't don't have access to that, I wanted to give them access. I wanted to help people on their journey, whether it was, you know, you're 21 you're just entering the workforce or you're 50 and you're changing careers like whatever it is we all face sort of the same human experiences so I I wanted to give tools and a place to feel supported beyond that the greater context of this is as I've mentioned earlier in this podcast is that I think that we need to redefine leadership I think that we have lost sight of what leadership is And, you know, I'm writing an op-ed about this now, but I really think that we have, we used to have people like Howard Schultz who like tells stories about his shareholders being like, you got to get rid of health insurance for your employees. you got to get rid of it. And he was like, absolutely not. I built this company because my dad didn't have proper health insurance. And I am not going to take that away from these families. And to have people that leadership is much bigger than us. And to have people that embody that and understand that inner work is integral to being a successful leader, that if you are not doing the inner work, then something will inevitably collapse. If your personal life is in peril, but your professional life is going well, they are linked, they are inherently linked, and something will come to a head. And I really, really think that's important for people to digest because you also have plenty of narratives where people have all the money in the world but they are miserable and they are lonely because they haven't done the work to understand that like that is not the only definition of success. And I really, really want to drive that home because I think people, we get really fixated on like material possessions or financial outcome. But if we don't have a rich friendship or we don't have great mental health or if we don't have great family or chosen family, whatever it is, um, then we're not succeeding.
2: Oh, you're hundred percent right and I'm so moved by what you've shared and and how you framed it um, connection is so much more valuable than uh, anything else connection is really what gets us through the um, the rough times it makes the the uh, the highlights also. It makes them that much more sweeter. If we have people in our lives we can share it with. And it's not it, it's it's not just people either. It can also be ideas or or pets even. Mm-hmm. Think of your little dog tokyo
1: <laughs> no it really is but it's also yeah. what we remember in in life like that when when we like get to the end of life what we remember is the people so, so. in our relationships and our community and our connection we don't remember that professional achievement like it doesn't it doesn't matter yes we will all want to leave an imprint we all want to leave a legacy i hope we all want to leave the world better than when we entered it but it's the people. And so I just think we're at a place where we've really forgotten that um, from a business standpoint, from a leadership standpoint. And I really wanted to create something that could show people what heart-centered leadership looks like. And so the podcast really is about that is I get to basically, like like Scripted, Scripted is a platform to tell people stories Do the work as a platform to tell people's stories that I get to share this, like these incredible leaders, these people are successful. They're interesting, not only financially successful, but they're personally successful. And that's really what I want. Um, I hope we can point to or move towards, and I hope I can be a part of that conversation.
2: You're already doing it is from everything that I'm seeing, because uh, you're, you're sort of living your truth, you're living what you want to see. Um, and I think it's incredible. So, um, you know, you are a part of that conversation already. It's just uh, so many others need to need to catch up. Um, I, I share this quick anecdote. Um, when I was a, a partner in private equity, um, For some reason, you know, not only fear based decisions were really ran rampant, but also the the finger pointing or the the accusations like that was such a such a thing, such a part of the culture there. And we were so I was one of the two partners in LA and we always had to go through an investment committee back east whenever we wanted to get a deal done. And so one of the investment committee members singled out my associate and said, um, "Who, Who did these numbers? And um we were like, what's what is he focused on? Why is he asking about that? So we're like going through, and he like really aggressively asked again in a way that I didn't like. And so I was just inspired. toise I, I said, "Well, if it's wrong, I did it. If it's correct, my associate did it." Yeah, And there was complete silence um on the other side, and they're like, "Oh. And then we just kind of moved on from it. Um, but afterwards, all the uh, associates, VPs, and analysts around the country all wanted to get on my deal slate. <laughs> yeah.
1: but also the thing is that's what that's what you realize it's not productive to shame people. It's not productive to like ridicule people. What, when you create beautiful companies and organizations, it's through empathy. It's through the idea that you're motivating to people to feel safe. If you don't have psychological safety in an organization, you don't have a company that's going to succeed. And so there's, there's this, I'm reading this book, really amazing book right now by Charles Eisenstein called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And he talks about, you know, really when people are coming from a lens of scarcity, or he calls it separation, the idea is he tells a story of his son. His son was um, selling something to a friend, and the friend ended up stealing it from him instead of paying what he had agreed to pay. And he was like, just go tell him, you obviously really wanted that. You can keep it. It's a gift. Mm-hmm. And because there's no point in like trying to get revenge on somebody or meeting them where they're at, right? Because all that does is create more animosity and more, you know, separation and more anger. And so he tells the kid basically, like, you obviously really want it. You know, you can have it. And the kid is like, oh no, no, well, let me like pay you like 50 bucks that's all I can afford because he couldn't afford what he had agreed to pay. And you realize that like that that is the the microcosm of everything, which is like, how can we meet anger or resistance or any of that with love? How can we meet and like understand like none of that stuff is important? And I think if we can come from that lens. We would heal a lot of things and we would have just better business organizations but a better world and yeah. i think about that a lot because oftentimes people take things very personally and oftentimes you don't know what's going on in someone's life you don't know what's happening and so how can we just like hold space or empathy that like it has nothing to do with us
2: exactly no so true well said yeah denise this has been such a great conversation i really appreciate your your candor and and true to form as you said in the beginning you were going to be transparent and, and you really were
1: <laughs> but I'm very just thrilled and present to be here with you so thank you so much for having me
2: no it's been a real thrill um love the work that you're doing just um wish you as much um uh, uh, gosh what's the right term uh just uh, i, I kind of want to say just like obviously success wish you as much success as possible but also just speed on your mission because you yeah. super patient yeah so yeah abundance is a great word it's all encompassing um but I, I just see that you've been so you know tenacity comes to mind you've just been really passionate about it and um it it, it is a, such a strong vision and a great approach um it, and especially so right for the marketplace as content creation is really shifting um from uh, you know large production studios to to now you know anyone with an ipad um can create and and how do they get seen or heard because there's yep. amazing stories out there and and work like what you're doing is the conduit by which they can be seen and heard so it's it's a beautiful platform a beautiful mission
1: Thank you, thank you so so much. So definitely
2: wish you abundance on that.
1: (laughs) From your mouth (laughs) to the universe's ears.